Suppose you're a mountain climber, climbing a huge mountain. You've made it all the way to the top. You get to the top, you throw your rope over the top, and you stop and pour yourself a sip of hot chocolate. Then you reach for the top, and to your horror, you slip. Fortunately, just down the mountain, about two feet, is a twig, and you grab hold of it. Now, let's talk about your situation. You know where you are, but you know you can't last long. Now, suppose a little person comes over the top of the mountain and sees you and says, Here, take my hand. I'll pull you up. And you size him up and you say, You know, if I put my hand in yours and let go of this twig, I'm just going to pull you off the mountain with me. Or suppose over the top of the mountain comes your algebra teacher from high school. And you remember that algebra teacher absolutely, you were certain, hated you and wanted you out of the class. And you figure, if I let go of this twig and take hold of his hand, he's just going to throw me off the mountain. Now suppose Jesus Christ comes over the top of the mountain and offers you his hand. Your hands are beginning to ache, and you feel like yourself slipping off the twig. What determines if you're going to let go of that twig and put your hand in Christ? It depends on whether or not you see Him as trustworthy. All of us, to some degree, find ourselves in the situation of the mountain climber. We're hanging on to hope in the midst of the uncertainty and turbulence of our times. We know we can't last long. With what's been going on to us uh, the last eight months with COVID, the economic lockdown, some businesses locked down, rioters in the streets and nobody getting arrested, that is all unsustainable. Now we've had an election. My guess is either you're elated about the results or you're angry and feel it was won by fraud and you're hoping it'll be overturned. In either case, it's exhausting. Jesus comes and says, I'm the only one who can get you through your situation and heal your country, but you've you've got to let go of what you're holding on to and put your trust in me. What determines if you'll put your trust in Christ? You must believe that He's trustworthy. Just like Jesus Christ calls you and me to serve Him, God called Jeremiah to be a prophet. Jeremiah says, I'll be your man, God. God sends him out to preach, but the people tell him to shut up. They beat him and throw him in prison. Jeremiah comes, comes back, and he's, he's shocked. He thought, you know, people would be thrilled with him for warning them about their impending doom. If you serve Christ and you're trying to faithfully serve Him, you expect that people will rise up and call you blessed. Instead, except for a few rare exceptions, people ignore Jeremiah and beat him. So he's ready 
to throw in his prophet's hat. God says, Jeremiah, you want a second tour of duty? So Jeremiah goes out again. Surely this time will go better, he presumes. But this time they beat him and throw him in a mud-filled cistern. It's like an old well with mud at the bottom of it. As a Christian, how do you handle the increasing hostility toward Christians in our culture? Jesus told his disciples to turn the other cheek. Do you let people walk over you like a doormat? No. Jesus confronted religious leaders. Yet while Jesus confronted, he didn't take retaliation into his own hands, but trusted God to bring judgment in his time. Jeremiah faced lots of opposition. People called him a liar and a traitor. As we watch Jeremiah, we can learn how to live in hope in uncertain times. This is the ninth in our series of messages called Navigating Uncertainty. We're talking about how to navigate these tumultuous times in which we live. Whether you're young or old, single or married, Christian or non-Christian, you can feel the tension in our country. If you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah 26. We find Jeremiah preaching in the temple. Early in the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Now, Jeremiah is always good at telling us exactly when he wrote. He writes this at the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign around 605 B.C. Jeremiah tells the people if they don't repent, they're going to be punished. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, you must die. Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh? In other words, it'll be destroyed. And this city will be desolate and deserted. The people of Judah know that their idolatry is wrong. But they're confident they have nothing to fear. They presume that God will never permit anything terrible to happen to Jerusalem, His holy city, and to His temple, and to His chosen people. Even if they are disobedient, it is blasphemous to think that God would allow His holy city to fall into the hands of the wicked Babylonians who are far worse people. Since God's covenant with David protected the city and the temple, they believed Jeremiah was denying the covenant and deserved to die. Jeremiah defends himself by declaring he's only telling them what God tells him. Some of the elders and an official named Ahikam come to his defense, so Jeremiah is not put to death. Then in chapter 27, we find ourselves at 594 B.C. at the beginning of Zedekiah's rule, the last king to rule in Judah before they're taken into captivity by Babylon. Early in the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord said to me. Make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck. Then send word to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon through the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. 
So Jeremiah uses a visible prop, a yoke, around his neck to symbolize that the people of Judah are to voluntarily go into exile with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He preaches his message when Zedekiah is conferring with five leaders from nations around Israel who are planning a joint military attack on Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Jeremiah says, no, that won't work. You must all submit and to go into exile with Nebuchadnezzar. Give them a message for their masters and say, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arms, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. God says, I am sovereign over the whole earth. If I say you're going to go into exile with Nebuchadnezzar, you are to go. Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under its yoke, I will punish that nation with the sword, famine, and plague. In other words, they're going to die, declares the Lord, until I destroy it by His hand. But if any nation will bow its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, if you voluntarily go into exile, I will let that nation remain in its own land to till it and to live there, declares the Lord. Like the mountain climber, the people of Judah are hanging onto a twig on a cliff and getting strange advice from Jeremiah. His message goes against common sense and everything they've been taught about being God's chosen people. It was inconceivable to them that God would allow Jerusalem to be destroyed by wicked Babylon. Will they believe Jeremiah, let go of the twig they're holding on to, and voluntarily go into exile in Babylon? Or will they fight Nebuchadnezzar? Many of them ignore Jeremiah and fight, and they're killed. Jeremiah 28 introduces us to a prophet named Hananiah. There were different prophetic schools in Israel. The prophets represented by Jeremiah, Isaiah, and all the other prophets you find in your Old Testament declare that the righteous character of God requires judgment, national defeat, and deportation from the land for failing to keep the covenant. The prophets represented by Hananiah said, oh no, that could never happen to the people of God. God is not going to allow a foreign country to come in and destroy this country. Well, not surprisingly, the school represented by Hananiah is much more popular with the people. In the fifth month of that same year, the fourth year, early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azar, who was from Gibeon, said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people. In other words, this is in the temple. There are a lot of people there. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. 
Within two years, I will bring back to this place, back to Judah, all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed. Remember, two years before, the first deportation happened, and they took all this, a lot of the stuff out of the temple from here and took to Babylon. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off of the neck of Jeremiah and broke it. And he said before all the people, this is what the Lord says. In the same way will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within two years. At this, the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. While Jeremiah is wearing a yoke, symbolizing that the people are to voluntarily take the yoke of going with Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon, Hananiah confronts Jeremiah in front of all these leaders and people. About the same time, according to uh, historians, Nebuchadnezzar was putting down a revolt in his land. Hananiah falsely concludes that this meant that Nebuchadnezzar was going to lose power and the people were going to be allowed to go back to Judah. So he breaks the yoke that's on uh, Jeremiah's neck, and all the people cheer, assuming that their leaders are coming back and all the gold from the temple is coming back. Then God tells Jeremiah to tell Hananiah, you have broken a wooden yoke, but in its place you will get a yoke of iron that you cannot break. Then to prove his prophecy is true, Jeremiah says to Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. In the seventh month of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. Fulfillment of a short-term prophecy that Hananiah was to die proved the truth of a long-term prophecy that the people of Judah were to voluntarily go into exile into Babylon if they wanted to survive. This showed them that he was right. In chapter 29, Jeremiah sends a letter to the exiles in Babylon. In 598 to 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had put Jerusalem under siege. Finally, he breaks through the walls and executes many of the people. He carts up all the leaders and skilled craftsmen, takes them back to Babylon where they can be useful for his kingdom. He leaves all the unskilled people in Judah. It was total chaos in Judah. Jeremiah sends a letter to the Jewish leaders in Babylon. Word had reached Jeremiah that there were false prophets in Babylon in exile saying, hey, this is all going to end in two years. Don't build homes. Uh, You're all coming back to Judah. And so Jeremiah felt it was his duty to tell them the truth. But no, you're going to stay there about 70 years. There's plenty of time to build houses and establish homes. And have families so that people will be available to come back to Judah when the captivity ends. This Jewish remnant is holding in its hands 
God's plan of salvation for the world. Now, you may not be in political exile like the people of Judah, but you are facing a tumultuous exile in your own country, a pandemic, an economic lockdown, riots, the election, and now the post-election with suspicion of fraud. You may be deeply discouraged by what is going on in our country and troubles in your own life. How do you hold on to hope in turbulent times? You can live with hope in turbulent times. I think we find in Jeremiah five important things you can do in the face of uncertainty to help you stay hopeful. First, speak God's truth. When opponents accuse Jeremiah of lying, being a traitor, Jeremiah replies, I'm simply declaring to you what God tells me to say. Then Jeremiah said to all the officials and all the people, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city, all the things you have heard. For in truth, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Time and again, we see that Jeremiah speaks only what God tells him to say. While the false prophets are telling people what they want to hear, Jeremiah tells them what they need to hear. When you're criticized or people say things that are untrue about you, your temptation is to go beyond God's Word and share your own opinions and emotions. You're better off just to tell people what God's Word says. That means you have to be reading the Bible, spending time in it, so you know what to say, and then allow the Holy Spirit to convict them. I think Jeremiah is to be commended, not only for what he says, but also for what he refrains from saying. Often when we encounter difficult people, we say far more than we should. Many times we'd be wiser if we said less. Length is not always better. The Lord's Prayer, Jesus' Prayer, has only 66 words. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address has only 286 words. Our Declaration of Independence is only 1,322 words. But regulations from our government on the sale of cabbage is 26,911 words. I mean, it's insane today how many words are in many pieces of legislation coming out of Washington, D.C. Jeremiah demonstrates that he speaks God's truth when his prophecies come true. He says Hananiah will die within a year, and he does. He says the Babylonians will conquer Jerusalem, and they do. He says that the people who surrender and voluntarily go into exile will fare better and will come back to Judah, and they do. The proof that a person is a prophet sent by God is in the fulfillment of the prophecy. Second, do not get angry or defensive. After Hananiah prophesies that Babylon will collapse and the Jewish exiles will come back uh, quickly from Babylon, the opposite of what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah is remarkably restrained in his response. Then the prophet Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah. This is, you know, before all the people in the temple who were standing in the house of the Lord. 
He said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back to this place from Babylon. He says, Hananiah, that would be great. He isn't defensive. He says, I'd love for that to be true. But God tells me it's not going to go that way. After Hananiah rips the yoke of wood off of Jeremiah and breaks it, we read, at this, the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. He doesn't shoot back in anger. He walks away. Jeremiah is like Christ in his response. Peter says of Jesus, when they hurl their insults at him, this is like the crucifixion and on the way to the cross and on the cross, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The third thing you can do to stay hopeful in tumultuous times is keep living. This is so important. The exiles lost everything but their lives and what few possessions they could carry on their backs into Babylon. They lost their freedom and were now captives. They lost their homes and their jobs. They lost many of their relatives and friends. Their situation seemed hopeless. What does God tell them to do? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, I've told you that Jeremiah has many famous passages. This is one of them. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, there, Babylon. Do not decrease. Also, very famous line, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, Babylon, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Jory asked me about a week ago, what are we going to do if so-and-so wins the election? Are we going to move to another country? I said, no. We're going to stay right here in Portland. We're going to live the way we're living. We're going to continue to do the things we enjoy doing, enjoy our family, and we're going to pray for the leaders. For if our country prospers, we too will prosper. In the midst of a terrible situation, The people are told to keep living, dating, getting married, going to the health club, jogging, working, building houses, shopping, cooking, going to church. In a crisis, the worst thing you can do is to stop living and pull into your shell. Don't stop doing the things that have always given meaning to your life. Keep living. John Wooden, former coach of the UCLA Bruins men's basketball team, won 10 national championships. It's been unprecedented, unparalleled. And in his book, They Call Me Coach, writes, In gameplay, 
It has always been my philosophy that patience will win out. By that, I mean patience to follow our game plan. If we do believe in it, we will wear the opposition down and we'll get to them. If we break away from our style, however, and play their style, we're in trouble. And if we let our emotions command the game rather than our reason, we will not function effectively. I constantly caution our team, play your game. Keep living. Eventually, if you play your game, stick to your style, class will tell on the end. That's what God says. Keep playing your game. Keep doing what's given meaning to your life in the past Don't let the fear of the pandemic or the crushing blows of the economic lockdown destroy your life or the results of the election or the suspicion that fraud made the difference. Like God advised the exiles of Judah, He tells you to pursue as normal a life as possible and wait for God to deliver you. Fourth, Do not pursue foolish shortcuts to hope. When we experience a loss of hope, we're vulnerable to accepting a quick fix. In times of delusionment, we're prone to follow a false vision. God says to the exiles, don't listen to the false prophets who say Babylon will collapse and you'll be coming home soon. When you're discouraged, cling to to God's truth. In this time of deep division in our country, some people have suggested that the best solution is to ban hate speech. Europe has already promulgated hate speech laws that crack down on disfavored forms of expression. Now, calls for the same are being issued in the United States. Most people in our country like these sort of limitations. I mean, they don't want people going around spouting hateful words against others. The problem is, there's no way to ban hate speech without granting the government the power to destroy free speech. And who gets to decide what is hate speech? Google, Twitter, Facebook? When we pursue foolish shortcuts to what we think is a better future, we often make things worse for ourselves. And finally... Remember, and I've said this every week in this series, remember that God is sovereign and at work and will bring good out of bad. God says to the exiles, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and will fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And this is one of the most famous verses in Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. 
Most people thought the Jewish exiles were without hope in Babylon. But it's in crisis that God does His best work. He was working among the Jewish exiles in Babylon to nurture a chastened and obedient people who would someday receive His Son into the world. Who would have ever thought that God would work His purpose through the exile in Babylon? If the exiles had rebelled against the Babylonians, they would have missed what God had planned for them. How should you respond when you find yourself in tumultuous times? Accept it from the hand of God. It does no good to hang up your harps on the willows in Babylon and weep. One of the most important steps in turning tragedy into triumph is to accept your situation and put your trust in God. The confusion with God's sovereignty is that He allows difficult things to happen to you. The comfort of God's sovereignty is that He is in charge and uses present pain for His glory and for your good. He never promises that you'll be free from pain, but He does promise that your pain will not be purposeless. Trusting God's sovereignty. That takes the worry out of living. In 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge was completed. At that time, it was the world's longest suspension bridge. The entire project cost the U.S. government $77 million. During the process of constructing the first section of the bridge, uh, very few safety devices were used, and as a result, 23 men lost their lives, falling from the bridge to the deep waters far below. The toll was so significant that something had to be done before they began the second section of the bridge. An ingenious plan was arranged. The largest safety net in the world was made out of stout manila cordage and attached from one end of the bridge to the other. It proved to be an excellent investment as it saved the lives of 10 men who fell from the bridge and their lives were spared. It also sped up the process of building the bridge by 25% as men were no longer terrified of falling to their death. God's great net of sovereignty, security, spans the globe. No matter where you live, no matter how much uncertainty you're facing, He has stretched out beneath us His everlasting arms. As a result, you can live and work without fear, knowing that you're safe, protected by Him. You can live with hope in turbulent times. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God and He was raised from the dead for your sins and have invited Him into your life to forgive your sins, your fear of perishing is gone. Eternal security has taken that load off your mind. Like the mountain climber, Jesus Christ offers to help you take the last step in summiting a mountain of uncertainty and turbulence. There's no doubt that Christ is worthy of our trust. The question is, are you trusting Him? Do you believe He's faithful? Let's pray. 
Father, we believe that you are faithful and we put our trust in you. Things can be turbulent around us and in our lives. We can be afraid, not know what to do, but we trust that you are faithful. I want to give you an opportunity right now to express that to God. If you believe that, tell him you put your trust in his faithfulness for our country, for your life, your job, your marriage, your children, your parents, whatever. And if you've never given your life to Christ, invite him to come in and be your Lord and tell him you're going to put your faith in him from now on. You pray. Give you a moment. Lord, we put our confidence in you, our trust in your sovereignty, and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.